Wicked, podcasts that are trying to understand the context of human trafficking within the Guelph Wellington area. Today's episode is being published on July 30th as part of our celebration of World Day Against Trafficking in Persons. This episode is titled Intersections, Labor Trafficking and Precarious Migration. Within this episode, Emma Callan interviews Loli and Chirita. Loli Rico is the co-director of FCJ, Refugee Center in Toronto. Chirita was a caseworker within multiple FFCJ's programs within their human trafficking field. FCJ Refugee Center is an organization that services refugees and others with a precarious migration status. They take a holistic approach to helping those affected by precarious migration through counsel, advocacy, shelter, and support. Their holistic approach is evidence even within their slogan, Walking with Uprooted People. Here at GWIC, we hope that in producing this episode with these lovely people, we can add to the discussion on the effects of systemic oppression on human trafficking survivors born outside of Canada. To use the phrase that from Lowly and Chirita within the podcast, labor trafficking in Ontario is a quiet prevalent, meaning there are no num- direct numbers collected and we don't see it, but it is occurring all around us from the farm to the nail salon. Before we start, let me introduce myself, since you'll be hearing my voice a little bit throughout the podcast. I'm Katie. I'm the anti-human trafficking counselor at Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis. One of the most significant intersections between precarious migration and human trafficking is labor trafficking. To start this podcast, Lily and Jihira answer the question, what is labor trafficking and how prevalent is it in Ontario and in Guelph? Through their chat with Emma, the conversation grows, highlighting the intersections of gender-based violence, migration, climate change, oppression, systemic racism, into a greater understanding of what is labor trafficking. Enjoy. Labor trafficking is a form of exploitation, for human exploitation. When we say labor trafficking is that it's, kind, it's, a, it's a type of human trafficking in which a person is forced to do a, something that they are not in, with their willingness or the person has been coerced. And uh, in that case, in the labor trafficking, is someone who comes to Canada or is living in Canada and is forced to work a t- different type of labor. We can say it in, as a migrant workers on service services, in the hospitality, but this really is no uh, is not related to sexual exploitation. Could be in the labor exploitation, can, you can see the two elements, but it's more focused on labor. And what is is that if you are working, and in your contract said that you will work six hours, you end up twelve hours, and you are not paid that overtime or you are, your wages are, they pay you with a condition that you need to pay, they discount rents and everything. It's still when the person has any human trafficking situation, is under the control of the trafficker. Thank you. And how prevalent is labor trafficking in Ontario and in Canada? I think it's quite prevalent. I think most people... When they think of human trafficking, their mind automatically goes to sex trafficking or that poster with that young girl. But labor trafficking, I think, is equally prevalent, if not more. Um, But it's more invisible to the public because of the lack of awareness. So I think it's quite prevalent. And I think Ontario is, as we say, a source, transit and destination province, as is Canada. And um, it's one of the most popular, pop, most populated, dense provinces in the country. So in that regard, um, we see a lot of people coming in and out of the country. But I think because of that, there's also a higher risk of exploitation. And the invisibility that Jaitra was saying is because 
there is no specific information or data to really prove what is human trafficking. In the province, for example, there is only two organizations working on labor trafficking uh, funded by the province. There are other organizations working with migrant workers, but also they don't have the concept and the, the lens of from the human trafficking. And, um, and one of the things is that Ontario is the province that has the highest uh, population that come as a migrant temporary foreign worker program. And uh, Ontario is one of the provinces that there is not any regulation or monitoring system on that specific. And when we talk about uh, the labor trafficking, if you see, you can see it everywhere. You go to do your nail salon, and then you realize that the person who is doing the nail, your nails doesn't speak the language, and someone else is controlling what they are doing. If you go to the, when have all the, in the fall, and open all the farms to go and pick up apples, you need to see, you see the person, the owners of the farms, in the front of the farm. But if you keep walking, you will see many migrant workers that they are invisible because also they don't have access to services. And in that case, they are in a very vulnerable situation to be exploited. Also because they don't know their rights, mm -hmm. that they are under, they have the rights under the Employment Standard Act and also under the, the Federal Foreigner Act that is in the national, but nobody informing that when they come. And that's something that that's when we say it's invisible because you can see it everywhere, but it's not counted. Yeah, I guess to yeah, echo what Loli was saying, and I guess that's one of the good reasons why you guys are doing this podcast and you have an episode is that it, if we look at published statistics, yes, it, it seems like labor trafficking is not like it's not there, but it very much is. And, that, and so we're I guess we're raising awareness of what is labor trafficking? What are the signs? What are the indicators? So that people then cannot see it as an equally type of human trafficking. Um, and it's incredibly insidious. So why do you think there is such a lack of awareness and people tend to think of sex trafficking when they think about trafficking? I think that is, is fashion. Is, I'm sorry, it's fashion. It's one of the things that if you be, if you see in this society, about talking about sexual exploitation, immediately it becomes a kind of moral situation because uh, in this society still, even though it's legal to work as a sex worker, it's not considered in this society as accepted in this society. And in that case, become many people that they are compelling to, or to, to support women that have been sexually exploited or to rescue, and I put it in quotation, rescue because nobody's being rescued, it's just to facilitate how they can get out of a bad situation. Also, it's very easy to identify because uh, one of the elements is that the law enforcement in Canada, when they start working about talking about human trafficking, was giving all the tools and resources to law enforcement to really tackle human trafficking because they were looking for the criminals. There was no focus on the person had been trafficked. And in that case, they were going to different places like massage parlors. They were going to nightclubs. They, and they had all this concept that these bad guys, these criminals, and you could see it like in the 
movies, the bad guy coming to attack these beautiful and young and small girls. And, uh, and that's something that we need to remove from that myth because Canada has been working on human trafficking to stop human trafficking since 2002 and it's almost 20 years and we still have that concept. And that's why we, we believe that labor, yes, she's cleaning my house, but I pay her, but no, she doesn't deserve the $25, she deserves 15 and that's what mm-hmm. is also, we are part of that. Thank you. And so who is impacted by labor trafficking or who ends up experiencing labor trafficking in Canada? I mean, I think with any type of trafficking, anyone's at risk, right? There are certain risk factors that can heighten someone's, I guess you can say, risk of being trafficked. But in our work, we see uh, migrant communities who are at at higher risk of, of labor trafficking, specifically those with precarious immigration status. And I think that speaks to a lot of other kind of systemic forces like uh, migration when it comes to political conflict, war, climate change. Um, You know, we see a large number of people coming here to do work and and it's because of certain reasons, right? It's because they are trying to support their families back home and they're the ones driving the global economy. So in that regard, we see most people that are affected by labor trafficking as migrant communities because when they come here they may not know their full immigration rights or their labor rights or maybe what they're earning here is much more than what they would be earning in their host commu- in their home community so in that regard these traffickers take advantage of this kind of lack of knowledge or their position of vulnerability in that regard hmm. so who are the traffickers like, would you, I'm just wondering, I guess, would you call it, like, who is facilitating the exploitation? Well, it could be, a, a, in our experience, could be anyone, like mm-hmm. it's the same in the sexual exploitation. But in our experience, have been people that they, we have been seeing many of people that they have been, uh, have the temporary agencies and recruiting in a way that they can go to their country of origin and recruit people to bring them here. Uh, the other is, uh, could be an employer uh, that uh, has a caregiver in their house and uh, being exploited there. Could be an employer who has is an owner of a restaurant and in a way to get more profit, they bring people to work for them, cook for them and uh, they can have a, the benefit. We cannot perpetuate a uh, the trafficker mm-hmm. because it's, uh, it's, it's wrong. Anyone who has an, a, a business or anyone who is hiring someone and is, uh, a, and is looking this person to, be, uh, to exploit them and to benefit themselves from the work and not being paid properly and not being treated with dignity, that could be a trafficker. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I think that, that speaks to the importance of not stereotyping who the trafficker is because it really can be anyone. And I guess in our experience, a lot of the traf- the people who have been exploiting the individuals are people from their own cultural, ethnic community. And I think that's, again, that's not in every case, but that I think speaks to the fact that there's already this baseline, baseline level of trust and, and the traffickers will exploit that vulnerability, right? And so 
Um, those are just some of the cases that I've been seeing where the trafficker are people from their own ethnic community. Um, and it's really unfortunate that that's mm-hmm. how it's happening. And you've talked about um, like massage parlors, nail salons, farms. In what sectors or industries do you see the majority of trafficking in Ontario? The one that is more visible, talking about visibility, is with the temporary foreign worker program. Because we know that they come with a work permit and they come to work in a farm. And because they come with a, a, and I will say, one is the, the, the seasonal agricultural workers, but also the temporary foreign worker program in general, because they come attach the work permit to an, a specific employer. And you can know, if you don't like it, you can know change employment. Even though now the government of Canada has a, a program that if you have been exploited, you can go <coughs> sorry, to ask for an open work permit, but you need to prove that you have been exploited. That's the only way that you can do it, but it's for a certain time. And then you need to find a job with another employer where they lock you back with that uh, work permit that is closed. And that's, that's, the, that's why you can identify easy. But also there is other uh, situations when you come and someone offer you a job and they you come with visa, visitor visa, and they manage to convince you that they will do all the paperwork, which is the most uh, invisible part because it's, we, don't, we don't find them very easily. You cannot identify them. You identify them when sometimes at least come to our office to the primary care clinic or because they have a friend that the friend knew someone in the office or they get to the point that they are so desperate that they call the police. And that's the cases that we don't know how like to really identify. Like for example, the podcast that you are doing, if you put it, and if it is a possibility even in different languages in your area, wealth is a very high dense of communities from all around the world. And also it's an area where there is a lot of a, a temporary foreign workers, but also it's a, an area that you could see there is a lot of international students that we haven't talked. There is a lot of uh, people coming to visit their family and at the end they stay. And also there is not an, an area that has a high um, a access to services because most of the organization is these services is related to eligibility. And any who is in the temporary foreign program or any visitor, they cannot have access to services. And that's, that's one element that is, is, is important. Hmm. Yeah, like as, as Loli was saying initially, the, the temporary foreign worker program, it can be seen as a venue for human trafficking, right? So especially when, we, when we're working with migrant communities, this, there's, group, there's groups of people that we see that actually are coming through this program set up bilaterally with the government of Canada, right? Because there's parts, there's aspects of this program that perpetuate vulnerability, right? A migrant worker who's coming here to work is coming with the closed work permit, right? That's already kind of a sense of control where there's no labor mobility in it whatsoever. Or the fact that most migrant workers who are coming here and working on farms 
are in very rural and remote areas. So that's a type of physical isolation. So there's many kind of these cross factors within the indicators of human trafficking and aspects of the temporary foreign worker program that very much match. Um, but it, it, it doesn't just happen in farm, like Loli was saying, it happens in so many other industries, right? When we think about trafficking, specifically sex trafficking, we look at hotels and motels. But as Loli usually always says, why don't we look at the people who are working in the other in other areas of a, of a hotel, right? Who are cleaning, who are at the front desk, right? Or even international students. I think there's this perception that a lot of international students come here are, and are extremely wealthy, but most cases a lot of them come here with this huge social pressure to make ends meet and to somehow get this amazing education and get a job so then they're settled but a lot of them may come from very poor villages back home and so because of that they've used all their family spending to to support their first or two first maybe one or two years in school but then don't have enough money so they're trying to make ends meet and in that regard you know, someone may approach them and be like, here's another way for you to make money. And they're already being taken advantage of because of their vulnerability as someone who needs that money to make ends meet and then somehow could possibly be forced into a trafficking situation. So I think when we talk about tra- when we talk about human trafficking, especially among migrant communities, it's not just people here coming to come and work either through a temporary foreign worker program or come here through a different type of immigration pathway and then are offered, but also people here coming to study. Can you tell me a bit more about that, like with um, international students and we have been seeing in right now uh, because in Canada and one of the impact of the the cuts to the to the educational system. Uh, many of the organ- the universities and colleges and even international schools, they have been going to different parts of the world to promote their schools. And in, in that way, they can attract international students. Why? Because an international student pay three times more than a domestic student. And in that case, when they come, they supposedly that the commitment of the colleges and universities is to provide services to them. But they call the services that they have access as to any of the students in Canada. But they come to a place immediately to get to a, pre- a, a academic pressure. Secondly, they don't know the society. They don't know the system. And they become more isolated. Beside that, they come with all the money they pay to the university. They come with a very small amount to survive. And and even though if you come as international student, you can work for 20 hours a week, it's not enough to survive in Canada, at least in the, in the, in the province. What is happening is that they become very vulnerable, that they can be... Being, being trafficked, not just on labor, but also in sexual exploitation. We have been seeing cases of a situation that they offer overseas, cheaper access to education, that at the end they end up working for a, a, with these homestay programs, that they stay with the family, they end up working as a caregiver, going to school for two hours, and they don't receive any payment. And that's something that we we start seeing. And we believe that is the ice, the point of the iceberg, because 
the 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 whole education system right now because the cuts from the governments they become more private pri privatized and that's the way to go is uh, internationally and also the other the, the big elephant that we are talking if you see we talk about issues about permits and no permits is the immigration system in Canada that uh, doesn't give the possibility how to come to Canada. And in that case, many people is using these forms to come and they end up exploited. And that's that's one of the things that, that's the main issue with the, with the trafficking. Like I, I just read an article that was published yesterday of these international students in Niagara who came here, were studying uh, at a college and then were misled about this a pathway to permanent residence but in reality the credits that they that they were taking were did not match with what immigration wanted for them to then end up getting a postgraduate work permit and then for them to apply for a PR um, and you know that's not a trafficking situation but being misled and coming here with the intention of having the right credits of studying and then applying for PR after spending thousands of dollars um, is exploitation, right? And so we can see how this case could have potentially become a labor trafficking or sex trafficking case if, for example, someone approaches them and says, don't worry, I can help you, you know, make make ends meet by, you know, doing this type of job and I'll help you with your immigration documents, so don't worry. And like that could have turned into a, a, a human trafficking case. So like we see cases where students come here and it turns out that their credits so match with what immigration wants and so then they've spent all this money with this intention to also not only like learn in Canada but to also possibly settle here and then when that doesn't happen it really puts them in a vulnerable situation for someone then to come in and then offer them these like false promises. Thank you. Um You've just mentioned the Temporary Foreign Worker Program a few times. Could you just give a little overview about what that is for people <laughs> that might not know? It's an immigration program. In, in, in immigration has, because the shortage of uh, employment, they have an, a, a program called Temporary Foreign Worker and it's for to, to fill it up that shortage of uh, employment here that they don't find in Canada. There was a, a very small program in the 90s and it started even in the 70s. And at the beginning it started what is the seasonal workers program that there was an agreement between the Caribbean governments and Mexico to bring a, a, a government to, a agreement to bring people to work in the farms. Then span and because cannot do agreements, bilateral agreements with the governments, that's how we start the temporary foreign program. What that means is that you can, if you don't have people to build your house or to build uh, in the construction, you can bring people to, to do the, in the construction uh, uh, sector. If you have, uh, for example, uh, in the, uh, I need people in the farm, but I don't want people from the Caribbean and I don't know how to bring people from Mexico, then you can make arrangements as a company and you can do this selection and people, they can do it. I will give you one clear example. Before 2008, they were the maple leaf. Uh, and because I'm originally from El Salvador, they announced it. 
that in their uh, meat packs, they expanded in Alberta and the other one in Manitoba. And they need people who can pack the meat. They went, the Maple Leaf went to El Salvador and through the International Organization of Migration, negotiated with the government to bring certain numbers of women. There was no men, women, because the women have, they are more delicate to do the packing. And that's how they, 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 they came. That's one of the examples when the temporary foreign worker was specifically for certain companies. And then you come with two years work permit and then you go home or they can renew it. Because that's the problem that these programs, because are low skill program, they don't have a direct pathways to permanent residence. In 2008, there was a boom, and the government at that time federally opened the temporary foreign worker program. And that's when anyone can hire any person if you have a need. But you need to prove that this is a shortage. But it's very easy. If you need someone with a specialty, especially in the construction, they are bringing a lot of people from Portugal, people from Brazil. countries uh, that they, they come to, to Canada with the expertise on, on construction. And that's how they come with two years. Bricklayers, I'm totally surprised. Bricklayers is one of the specializations in the construction. You come with two years and then every two years you, you can renew it. Mm. If in your province it is a need, then you can apply for a permanent resident through the province. And it's a very complicated, it's a very complex process. That's why many people is taking advantage of them. That what uh, Yetra was saying. They tell you, like now they are selling you, come as international student, you finish two years, you have two years of postgraduate, you get your permanent resident, which is not true. You need to go through, if you are eligible, to the express entry can, uh, in the Canada class. And that's what all this complexity, I go back with immigration, that give these gaps and these uh, like uh, holes that you need to know perfectly the system in a way that you can go through, that we give the opportunity to these creep, creeper people and they can take advantage of the vulnerabilities of them because I'm not saying that anyone who comes to Canada wants to stay in Canada because it's not true. But many people is looking to come to Canada as a possibility to survive because they have a family mm -hmm. that they need to support at home. Mm -hmm. And, I, and it, it's in the name itself, right? It's the Temporary Foreign Worker Program. So within it, like the government of Canada already puts a seal like you're only coming for this period of time and then you have to go home right but um we also have to be aware of like the different like again the different forces right people come here again for survival sometimes right because they need to send money back home or because of gang violence or political conflict um so there is no pathway for permanent residency um and so in that regard if if people are coming here to work and they need to renew their contracts then 
there's this pretense that they need to be on their best behavior. And that could be an issue if their employer is exploiting them, right? So if their employer is exploiting them, but they don't want to speak out because they want to be, they want to come back again and have their contract renewed, that puts them in this like situation of exploitation. And we've seen it, especially with the seasonal agricultural worker program. Like a lot of the cases we've seen, it's their dads, their grandfathers who have been coming to this program for decades, right? And and their dads and grandfathers have had good, you know, good experiences but it's it's this notion like you need to keep quiet otherwise i'm going to put a note on your profile and you're not going to come back again next year so it's it's this temporary program where sometimes people come here and they're forced to kind of be okay with the situation that they're in so that they can come back again and earn money to send back home and essentially survive right not always the case but in some cases and and also like a lot of care workers come um to work so in this for this actual situation the government has realized that a lot of care workers who are coming here and working to support canadian families to take care of their kids or their elderly are have been in situations of exploitation so they've they've created these new two new immigration pilots where now care workers who are coming here are essentially pre-approved for permanent residency which is a you know a good step in the direction in the sense that there is this like end there, there is this like light at the end of the tunnel, right? Like w- people who come here can work for two years and then they can apply for PR and they're set to go. Um, but then that also brings a discussion of then who is eligible for this program now because of the Immigration Canada has put these con- restrictions on you need to have this much amount of money before you're coming in or you need to have this much education coming in. So it, it speaks to really maybe those who are very privileged to come through this program and not maybe those who really truly need to come. Could you talk at all about um, how these programs or how labor trafficking is gendered? Um, Like the role of gender, if these programs perpetuate gender inequality or in what ways? Like you talked about the meatpacking being um, seen as women's work. Well, you know, and it is a a myth that we need to, to remove it because everybody, when you talk about temporary foreign worker program, Immediately, the image that when you do the question is a man coming. And it's not that that much true. We even as we have been learning because when you go to, for example, when I, I start working on this, but with uh, migrant workers, I went to Limington and I'm talking in the 90s. And we went to a church because the, uh, the seasonal workers they go, they finish on on Sunday, and because the farms are far from the place, the farmers at that time were bringing them, drop them in the town, and they go to buy and to send money, and, and also there is a church. And there was a church, and was the first time I went to a church when it was pack of men. One or two women, but pack of men. And we were laughing because we were saying, well, the first time I see men in the church, no way. But then they were the, at that time, the union of the, uh, the union for food, they were trying to helping them to teaching them English in a way that they can communicate and not just to have the four men being the communication with the employer, like a given rights. Now you go back and you start seeing that the what they are doing is very genderized in a way that 
the even the employers they choose where they want to put it and which gender for them and it still is uh, this very typical the the hard work is for men the no hard work is for women for example you go to the mushroom farms and it's a lot of women and if you go to the other farms it's, you see the variety no but whoever is in the line selecting the fruit and everything is woman and and who is going and pick up or moving the trucks are men and that's how they do the separation but also it's very challenging because we have been seeing situation of sexual assault or sexual harassment either among of the workers or through the employers why because if for example in the mushroom farms we saw a situation that she left the country because if she didn't want to satisfy the needs of her supervisor he won't put her to the where the best mushrooms are and because they pay you by pound which is is unbelievable you need to have certain amounts of pound which means it's the the minimum wage they no matter how long you work you need to have that in that case he was putting her in the place where the mushrooms were no growing that big and 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 that's when we can see the genderized situation and we don't we uh, even in the in the community but also in the sector we don't see it that there is a lot of gender issues on that uh, still you see men speaking up but for example we just saw uh, two people that they were trafficked to do cleaning on in dealerships but these two persons they came with their families and you could see that who was working was not only the men the wife and even their children all of them they were in a trafficking situation because they were living with the trafficker they were and you could say well this is trafficking exploitation because it's a trafficking situation for the child even though was not doing the work, but was living in the bad condition with their, their parents. And, uh, and we don't have that perspective yet, even in the human trafficking sector. And the human trafficking sector, <laughs> we don't have it. <laughs> and that really speaks to what you were saying about needing to be on your best behavior and what that means for a woman versus a man, maybe. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, it I- is. No, it's very interesting because... Uh, with the cases that we have been seeing, for example, in the with the case that was in, and is public in Wasaga and Berry, we have been seeing uh, situations that they were working in the service, but even they, the the work that they were doing, the women they were doing in the room, the men, if they were nice with the trafficker, she was putting them on the supervision roles, and. And the other thing that we have been seeing is that we are talking about gender, but we need to look on the gender perspective on the lens because we were seeing people that they didn't disclose, but they were part of the LGBT community. And this is the most silence because Mm -hmm. they cannot disclose their identity because they could be harassed because there is no education among the workers less with the employer and and that's that's something that we identify 
until we gain their trust, they start open up with us. And we are in Canada, and it's supposedly that this is a place where you can be whoever you want, no? But and it also when we talk about gender-based violence, like care workers who come to Canada to work, majority of the care workers who are coming are are women identifying, and there is there's been a change since, but before it was required for care workers who live in the in the home of their employer, and they're subject to a lot of exploitation, but one being like sexual exploitation, and so the government and because of persistent advocacy of community. They took that um, that requirement off, right? So that also speaks kind of the gendered nature of the exploitation of of care workers, of temporary foreign workers who come to Canada to work. But at the same time, it's not the requirement. Not anymore. No anymore. Yeah. But if you are living in Toronto and you come and work as a caregiver, you can even bring your family because that's the new in uh, the new program. But you come to work. And you come and work as a caregiver, and the rent just for a basement apartment is a thousand. And what you receive, how much is like a two thousand four hundred or something like that? For because it's is like a twenty dollars an hour to it's pay. Like, it's like minimum it, wage. Yeah, it's more or less the minimum wage. Fifteen it, depends. It depends on where you are in Ontario, and uh, yeah, because they have like median wages, and so depending on where you are in Ontario, there's different rates of how much you should be but paid. They are saying the caregivers. Yes, they give us the possibility to live, out uh, no to live with the employer, but then it's so expensive, and mm. they need to send the money that some of them they decide to stay with yeah. the employer. And in that case, you go, like, a, it, it's good, the program. I'm not blaming that now they did changes. But how we can provide more support to them in a way that they can choose, like, a, for example, a specific housing program for caregivers or something like that, no? But not just to say, okay, you don't need to live there. Yeah, but where is going? they are going to live, no? Choice is still limited by the... Yeah. Yeah, so it makes sense. And also because not everybody's rent you the apartment, you need to show who oh, you yeah. are, what you have, if you have credit, and if you just arrive, and all the racism that we have been uh, in, uh, proving. For example, in my organization at the FCJ, we did a, a, a report about the discrimination and racism on the with the housing search, and we did based on the people that have been looking for housing especially precarious migrants, you could see there is there is racism to you are going to rent. It, it depends what is your color, where are you coming from, what is the language, and your immigration status. Yeah, I think that really speaks to that a good point of when, we, when we're talking about exploitation and, or, and human trafficking, that we need to look at intersectionality and the different structures of oppression that are, are playing, right? And so, like, maybe, like, language or accent or... Um, you know, how you identify in terms of your gender, uh, all these different things, like how are these different structures of oppression, your race, your socioeconomic status, how do they play in your experience in Canada, and how do, how do they further perpetuate this violence that you're experiencing? Thank you. How do you think, or can you speak to how, can you speak to what the impact is on the individual after experiencing trafficking or labor exploitation, like you are coming to Canada, maybe through one of these programs or 
you're working, you know, in a formalized sector, um, and you experience all this discrimination and exploitation, like what ends up being the impact on it's, the individual? It's a huge impact. We have been seeing uh, cases in this situation that the first thing that you lose is trust. You don't trust anyone. And and we, with my colleague, with Luis, we went to Kitchener, and there was a case that they were totally abandoned. And uh, they were, I remember when we met with them and we started talking who we are, and uh, we just started with running the, the, the project. We were explaining what we were planning to do, give them information, what is their immigration status, how to help them. They said, well, yes, many people have been coming and offered that. Thank you very much. And we were just going little by little, meeting to them, gaining their trust. And when we managed to do the paperwork, like to really get a sort of a status of one of them, the rest start seeing and start coming. And uh, and one of the, the, the things is that you lost trust because when you come, you trust the person. Sometimes the person speaks your own language. Sometimes it's even relative or friend of your relative. And then you see all this mess and you say, what's going on here? You lost trust on humanity, no? The other impact is that sometimes the concept of exploitation that we as advocates we have is different and is many of them go back to a, a level of exploitation, not as a human trafficking that bad, but they continue being in an exploitation situation. For example, a woman was working as a, in the servitor, because I cannot say caregiver. She was in a servitor totally. She was a slave, because even she was calling the employer master, sleeping on the floor, in the kitchen, going back, going to bed at midnight, waking up at five, no payment, no access to anything, just to drop the kids at the bus stop. Even she were not allowed to touch the phone and she didn't touch it. That's how it was the level. She get out of the situation and she was with us and we start gaining trust. And one day she came and said, I found a job. And we were, because one of the things is that if you are identified as a victim of human trafficking, you can get the temporary resident permit with a war permit, which is an health coverage. And she had a war permit and she said, I found a job. And now uh, we said, well, what happened with the, with the, with, with, with the job? And she was explaining, well, I'm going to live with the family. And because she was resident of one of our houses, I'm going to live with the family. And then the uh, on the weekends I will come to the house. It is okay with you, and I was okay. But how much they are paying you? And she said, well, because they will give me food, place to sleep, they will pay me two hundred dollars a week. And I said, how long you will work? And she was explaining you that she was going to do the same like she did, but this time they will pay her. And I said, you know that this is a. They are exploiting you. You are going to in that situation. Do you remember? And her answer was, Loli, at least I have a bed and a bedroom that I can lock. I, I, but you, if, if I'm explaining you, 
is that they were exploring her. And for us, I said, it's your choice, but anything that you have or you face and you have a flashback, you can come and we can help you. And she went and the week later on, she came back and she said, Loli, I was. And that's when she realized and said, no, I need to have that someone value me. But it's take a time and you need a lot of counseling in which even though it is available, the counseling, you don't have access to counseling because all the delays. And if you are in the labor exploitation, I've been seeing even the counselor doesn't get what is the trauma. And that's, that's one of the challenges. The latest case that we saw was they were, they were found by the police because two colleagues of them were in, a, in an accident, like they were cross, crashed by a, a truck. One of them, she died and the other ended up in the hospital. That's when they realized, wow, this is something. Because for them, was the normal thing. I, yeah, I think this this also speaks to like like as Lodi speaks about the case about the woman and how even though she she was with precarious immigration status and then FCJ supported her with getting a temporary resident permit and a work permit and health coverage that like it really talks about ensuring that you have a that you are supporting the individual as holistically as possible. So even if someone has now has immigration status or they're on their path to regularizing their immigration status and has now access to healthcare, that they may still not, they may still be in crisis in other ways. And so it's like, what about their housing? Do they have access to counseling? Do they have access to justice? Do they have a family lawyer, right? Do they have, um, do they have access to employment services to help them find work or like resume building? So. I mean, not every organization does every single thing, but it's about being aware of the different kind of needs and asking questions, right? Even when I see like cases that are um, labor exploitation cases and not trafficking, you know, I'll ask them things about their pay and how their employer treats them. And then I'll ask them, oh, how's your housing? Like, where are you living? And then they'll tell me where. And then I'll be like, so like, if you don't mind me asking, how much are you paying rent? Like, how many people are living with you? Like, is your landlord nice? And sometimes they'll laugh and they'll be like, why are you asking me these questions? And it's for me, it's like, well, I'm just trying to kind of get the big picture of what else is happening behind the scenes, right? Like sometimes we get cases. I think one of the biggest cases that we saw, um, and I didn't see the individual, Loli did, but she had come initially because she had a concern regarding her housing. And she wasn't happy with the conditions that her and her children and her husband were living in. But it was actually a huge labor trafficking case. But she had initially come to us because she was having issues with housing, not because she identified or saw the situation as trafficking. There are a lot of parallels in what you're describing in the work that I do and mm-hmm. the ways that people that I support are impacted. It's interesting. Um, you talked about it being trafficking, but not exploitation. Is there a line at which exploitation becomes trafficking? Um, You know, you have things like the Employment Standards Act in Ontario, and then you have, you know, human rights violations, and and you have trafficking. At what point, what's the line between exploitation and trafficking? Okay, that is the spectrum of the exploitation. And uh, it's a very gray line, Mm -hmm. but that, you don't know sometimes it is or no, it is trafficking. Um, it, we need to understand 
like for example, if someone comes to work, because not all temporary foreign workers are in the trafficking situation, come to work, they find an employer, the employer meet all the uh, uh, requirements of the Employment Standard Act, and everything is going well, well paid, blah, 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 happy. But they come and they meet these standards, but then the employer start mistreating them or having human rights violation or insulting them. Well, it, the level of exploitation increase, no? Then if this employer don't allow you even to go to the bathroom or to have a break, or when you are in your breaks, you need to be working. The the level of exploitation is growing. And then when the employer say, well, you, you will work, but I will deduct this because I was so nice and left you to eat this or uh, you you, unpay, you are letting you sleep in the place. And that's how it goes to the level to get to the trafficking. And when we divide that level, of, uh, uh, the spectrum of exploitation, we don't wanna get to the point that we have to declare the person traffic person. Mm -hmm. What we want is to really, the person is well informed that whatever they will do, they have rights and they can defend themselves. And that's what is the, 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 the line, is how the level of exploitation, and, and if you see in the definition, you need to meet the three elements. No, they brought you for a means to exploit you, coerce, or fraud, or, and then with the with the with the, the the end up is to have a labor exploitation, no, or servitude, and uh, or even in sexual exploitation. And uh, if you if you you see these three elements, and at least three of these three parts is uh, meet the criteria, that's when you define as a human trafficking. The problem is, it's with the authorities for us as a uh, advocators since the moment is a labor exploitation there is a big issue it's not just to go to the minister of labor and do a report there is a systemic issue but then the problem is that for to be recognized as a victim of human trafficking in the system you need to go through all of that in a way that you can have a kind of benefit why we need to wait there? Why we don't start giving the services and the benefit when you start just identifying that you are a victim, you are exploited? Yeah, that's that speaks to being preventative as as much as possible, right? I mean, I like even myself as someone who works in the sector, understanding the immigration system is complex, right? And knowing all the employment rights and laws is complex. So I don't expect someone coming into this country to know the ins and outs, but they should be provided with the right documentation and the right numbers in terms of knowing what are the what are their rights, but also who to call if there's a situation. And there are mechanisms in place, but obviously they're not 100% efficient because otherwise we are why would we why would we still be seeing exploitation? So I think it's about recognizing the signs and, and building more awareness about labor trafficking and knowing that this is a real type of trafficking and it's very much happening here. Um, and so when when you see someone who's maybe not being paid right, the right wages, not getting vacation time, not getting the right amount of breaks, is doing work that they said that they that they were promised to do and aren't doing, like that's labor exploitation. But keep your radars up in terms of this could be trafficking, right? 
is there, are they being forced to do that work? I think that's one of the biggest elements. If they're being, if that force really comes in, then it could really, it, it could possibly, like the situation could poss- possibly constitute as labor trafficking. And like Loli said earlier, it can be a bit of a gray, a gray line. It, it definitely is a spectrum. And even me, I sometimes have trouble deciphering whether is this a labor trafficking case or is this like a labor exploitation and I have to speak to Loli all the time and be like can you help me with this and and so that's me someone who works in the sector so it's not easy and I, I don't expect anyone to be like experts in it but it's um I think it's about just raising a lot of awareness and being preventative as much as possible you've talked about a lot of um different things at play that kind of allow trafficking to happen so you have countries of origin where there might be political unrest or poverty or you know war or climate change Mm -hmm. and then you have a complicated immigration system in canada and then you have these government programs you have educational institutions operating in a certain way (laughs) and then you have private (laughs) employers and then you have a lack of services and then you have all these individual barriers like you know language or um whatever it is. So can you speak at all to how we can do better and how, like what Ontario or Canada needs to do or what? We can do better what we need to do. And I kept saying all the time, even my colleagues working in the different government is that we need to have a clear legislation where we can stop human trafficking. In, in Canada in relation to the, the four Ps, the famous four Ps, that is on the prevention, protection, and prosecute. If you see, they put a prosecution at the beginning, but I'm putting at the end, and then the partnership. Like I, even prosecution at the end, partnership and prosecution. But we need to, to have uh, that specific legislation where you don't need to come and say, hey, I'm a victim of human trafficking. I need access to service. Why we don't do an overall access to services to anyone who arrived to Canada and needs help? Why not also Canada is doing something in relation uh, to the overseas? Why not we keep taking all these transnational companies accountable? Because they are part of the problem. They are the ones. They're the ones that they go to take away the water, the mines. They're displaced people mm. and make them to come. Like, go to Guatemala. What is the biggest mine company that is displacing all the indigenous people that they have been, they have been farmers all their life? A Canadian company. And in that case, you need to make accountable to your government. And, 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 and I'm saying, it's not a, to get is get re- enough resources to the to the organizations that they are working but it's mm-hmm. not give me more money no resources where we can do a more holistic the approach and the services to the person than to start going in a how we can cut the the corners in a way that how you do these services i think is we need to have an get out of the box and start thinking okay how I'm going to prevent human trafficking is 
how I can open up in services, how I can review the immigration system in a way that I can open up and have accessibility. I'm not saying the whole world wants to come to Canada. It's not true. But Canada is the second country largest in the world. We have the capacity. Yeah. Yeah. How, and why? how Canada really can have a clear and implement a strategy, anti-racism and strategy. If we do that, we will be more welcoming and we will be less to seeing people, like a, less looking at people, I can exploit them. The other is to be aware because we are part of the game. Uh, like a, we joke in my office because all of us, we like to do nails. Why not we are aware to go and see the nail, who is the owner of the place, how it is, like to try to, to talk, because I want to stop going to do my nails, but it is, why not do it more local, like be aware of that. And in that case, we will be part of to try to stop human trafficking. The other hand, human trafficking doesn't won't stop because we live in a society that is based on the exploitation of the other human being because we live in a neoliberal society that that's how it is and it's not just Canada, it's the world and until we 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 really change that then I can say we are stopping human trafficking I mean she said it all <laughs> you mean- if we if we can even look if we really want to be zeroing in even like the if we look at the temporary foreign worker program and this is something they said that they would be working on like there's not better like monitoring mechanisms at all right so when an, an auditor is coming in to just say go and look at a farm that auditor will let the employee the farmer know that they're coming in and so that that like that's not really true auditing right and so that is an example where we can make changes or even like temporary temp agencies right in ontario they're not they're not regulated in any way so i can create my own temp agency and then recruit people from a different country and then you know contact an employer who then is going to pay me all the money to then distribute to all all you know the people all the workers under me so that's that's like a clear like that's a clear change that can happen right like regulate temporary temp temp agencies thank you I just want to say, you talked about the three P's, uh, prevention, partnerships, prosecution. And uh, protection. And protection. Four P's. Four and, P's. Oh, okay. And, <laughs> and the other two, I would say, would be poverty and patriarchy. Oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. Okay, I have one other just little side question. People sometimes talk about migrant smuggling. Can you just say a few, few words about the difference between migrant smuggling and trafficking yes and i love to talk about that because i'm <laughs> tired that they mix it mm-hmm. yeah and uh, we start mixing it when the in 2012 who was the minister of immigration he made the mess which is smuggling is anyone who pay an agent to go to cross a border. And when they cross you the border, the business finish. It's like a transaction. It does, the transaction, yeah. The trafficking is when someone even, and also in the smuggling, you look for, the, the smuggler doesn't come and lure you, or can lure you, but 
doesn't come like you are the one that wants to move. With the trafficker, trafficking is that the trafficker comes and start grooming you to do everything and to move you, but doesn't mean that you need to move you from a border. Can move you anywhere and then you will start working for them and they continue the control and the exploitation and receiving the benefit from you. It's a very different picture. And that's we need to have a very clear. And it's smuggling is, yes, you smuggler, smuggler, a migrant. Trafficking could be anyone. You don't need to cross the border. Could be crossing provinces. Could be different within, cities. Within could, the city, be, yeah. could be inside the city. That's a big difference. But it, there could be, and I, I also mentioned this a lot in our presentations, that smuggling could turn into a situation of trafficking when, for example, an agent, you know, says someone, I'm going to help you cross the border and come here. And then maybe when the individual comes here, this is just an example I'm, I'm bringing up, where they say, actually, wait, you actually owe me this much money. And so for you to owe me this much money, you're going to be doing X, Y, Z. And so that's when you see that, that, that relationship with this individual continues and the exploitation continues after the individual arrives at their destination country. So that's an example of how smuggling can then turn into a trafficking situation. Which is very common happening if you see crossing uh, Mexico, United States, that sometimes the smuggler to cross you from, uh, now that is more difficult, from Mexico to United States, you, they need, now they, they are charging you from one place to another place to another place. And when you don't have the money, they put you to work. And that's what it is. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I really appreciate your time. Could you, um, yeah, is there anything else you wanted to add or anything you wanted to promote or talk about or plug? Do you have social media? Well, I think we mentioned this throughout, uh, throughout this podcast, but immigration status is one of the biggest, um, the biggest things that we see that a lot of traffickers will exploit. And this again comes to, I guess, the lack of knowledge or awareness of the immigration system. And so we see a lot of people with precarious immigration status. And what we mean by that is anyone whose immigration status isn't, that is fluid, that is like, can be changed, right? That's not, what's the word? It's not, it's not like concrete, if that makes any sense. Like it's not, they're not permanent resident, they're not Canadian, Canadian citizen, like it can change. And so I think a lot of people that come here are coming with really good intentions and are being falsely promised, you know, immigration documents and PR. And then they end up, that that doesn't end up happening and they fall into this situation where they're now non-status. And so there's a large, large fear around it where even for us to be able to access the individual's that come to us for support is a huge privilege, right? Because we're in this position of trust. Um, and so I think that's why so much awareness and preventative efforts really need to be increased because so that we don't see people then fall into these situations of becoming non-status and then having, not knowing who to trust to ask for support. And so in our work, we, we support a lot of people in precarious immigration status. And I, it's a huge privilege to do so because we have that trust, but um, it also isn't a good thing because we don't want to keep seeing people in those situations. No, we don't want to, but... You're going to work yourself out of business. Well, <laughs> I wish. I, I haven't been here for 29 she years. Was <laughs> no, but also to finish, no? 
But it's the same like a sexual assault, sexual violence, domestic violence. We need to, we say when we are going to stop and you use the other two pieces. And one is the patriarchal system and maybe you put together globalization, all these systems who are more benefit is always the exploitation to someone. And, uh, and, and I don't know if that is going to change maybe when my great, great children <laughs> no, my grandchildren, because that's what I was saying before. Now it's my great-great-children. <laughs> wow, what a great discussion to be a fly on the wall for. I walk away from this episode with more knowledge and my eyes more open to the reality of what labor trafficking is and how I am, a, as a member of society, am contributing to it. I love that piece at the end, that with human trafficking, everyone thinks of sex trafficking survivors within the motel. And that's certainly true within my job. But what about people who are working for that motel, who are working for less than minimum wage or no pay at all? This is a point that I'm going to reflect on during World Day Against Trafficking in Persons. In what ways am I invisibilizing those who are experiencing human trafficking? And in what ways am I not seeing those who are experiencing human trafficking? Wicked podcasts are going to be produced every month, so I look forward to continuing to deepen my own knowledge on human trafficking and hopefully sharing it with a few others. Feel free to follow Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis on Instagram at GWWISC and the same handle for Twitter, or at Facebook uh, at slash GW Women in Crisis. And see you next time. Mm-hmm.